Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Olson. This podcast is produced to give fundraisers and nonprofit leaders like you the tools to increase mission impact. Tune in weekly so you don't miss a thing. Your mission is critical. Your resources are finite. You need a partner that can deliver customized, scalable, and relevant donor communications that increase response and maximize net long-term revenue for your cause. You need Altus Marketing. Check us out at altusmktg.com or email me directly at a-o-l-s-e-n at a-l-t-u-s-m-k-t-g.com to learn how we can elevate your fundraising results. And now here's today's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Olson here today, and I'm here with Erica Carley, who's the Senior Director of Operations at Chive Charities. Erica, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, so have I. We had a great conversation a while back, and I'm I'm excited to get you on the show to talk about it a little more with the with the uh, the public. And and first, before we um, be, before we jump into the the primary questions, just give us a little bit of background. What's Chive Charities, and what's kind of their origin story? Yeah, great. So, um, brothers John and, and Leo Rezig, they founded Chive Media Group in 2008. So it began with a website and it later evolved into a lifestyle brand with a variety of business lines that included digital media, e-commerce, sports, and charity. So that's where we came in, but we didn't come in until 2012. So 2012, Chive Charities was born out of CMG's community and their desire to do good. So really, it ended up being day after day, members of the community would send messages through the website and they were letters requesting support for different causes. So it sort of had a similar feel to like a GoFundMe fundraiser, like, please help this, look at this great cause, you know, we need to support this. So a simple post on that website with a call to action, it would just raise tens of thousands of dollars in a day. So uh, help us save the volunteer Fubana County Fire Department. A simple post raised $30,000 in a day. Uh, A bigger one was help uh, make a down payment on a home for a Navy EOD tech, Taylor Morris, who was a quad amputee, and $250,000 was Hmm. raised in a matter of days. Same thing for a little girl named Lily, who was battling a a rare disease. So we recognized a theme. The requests were falling into four cause categories. So we are seeing military families, rare disease, veterans, and first responders. And the theme ended up anchoring our mission um, as we recognized the power of our community. So we incorporated, we launched our 501c3 in December of 2012. And over the last 10 years, it's our 10-year anniversary, we've raised nearly uh, $20 million to provide life-changing grants and critical aid to hundreds of recipients across the United States. So just a little bit about, that's our origin story, but a little bit about how we actually put that into practice now. Every week, we provide one to two critical grants for individuals with life-altering or life-threatening needs. So You said every week? Every week, one to two. Huh. So- and the grants range from like $2,000 to $70,000. They average around $35,000 a piece. So therapy equipment like adaptive tricycles, robotic walkers, service dogs. We do a lot of wheelchair accessible vans and a wide range of different mobility items. We fill the gaps where insurance and other resources 
um, cannot. And are, uh, all, so- are all of these grants surfaced through your your user and member community? So all of the grants are funded through our Green Ribbon Fund, our monthly donors and one-time donors. Um, so yeah, we, we how, fund do, every how do the people in need find you? Are, are they from that same community or, or like, like what's that pipeline look like? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So we have a pretty um, robust referral resource program. Okay. So we have partners all across the United States. So hospitals, social workers, um, even uh, van dealerships. They know about us. We have relationships. They have our materials. Um, We do a lot of outreach in the communities that we serve. Um, And we also serve nonprofit organizations. So that's a much smaller, um, you know, uh, pool of our recipients. But we do serve nonprofit organizations. And we have seen that um, it's been really effective in pulling in additional individuals. So individuals that that nonprofit serves, they might come to us requesting um, gotcha. an additional grant. Okay. That makes sense. So yeah. what, um, how, how do you get to Chive Charities? Yeah. So that's a, that's a great question. It really it takes me back. Um, I joined Chive Charities in March of 2016. So um, over six and a half years ago, I had recently moved to Austin, Texas with my husband, and I was advising and running operations for PACE, um, philanthropy and community engagement. I was doing that remotely, and I I still work with them. They're a private giving circle, and they partner with nonprofits across the United States to fund direct impact programs, Hmm. Um, and they offer unique resources from their distinguished members, so a lot of um, members of the entertainment community, um, authors, people who are very well known, and uh, those unique resources are sort of critical to their mission. Uh, that's given me a really incredible opportunity to get an inside look at hundreds of nonprofit organizations mm-hmm. across the United States. So I got to see what works best, what doesn't, best practices, um, consider different models of giving and impact. So anyway, at the time, I was interested in finding something local that would get me out and engaged in the community. We had just moved there. So a friend of mine heard about Chive Charities. She heard that they were looking for development talent, and uh, she connected me to Brian Mercedes, executive director. He's been there since day one. He's grown up from the ground up. Uh, so we met for a cup of coffee and I think I asked, you know, 50, 75 questions about their work and, <laughs> and where they wanted to take the organization. So very similar to what I do when vetting organizations for pace. And it, it felt like a glass slipper. It was mm. the perfect fit for me at the time. And obviously it still is now. Um, I loved the multifaceted mission. Um, I felt passionate about the four separate communities they served. And I also saw it as a big opportunity for my professional development, which is very important to me. Um, It was exciting to join a a small and young nonprofit that had a truly unique model and a ton of potential. So I was excited to learn from their talented team members. And also um, I saw a big opportunity to help them advance and grow. That's really cool. Okay, so you and I first connected uh, because you you shared something on LinkedIn. I don't remember the exact stat, but I remember sitting back in my chair when you shared about your retention rates and saying to myself, like, either it's they have either they have some fantastic approach, or this is a bunch of crap. Like this yeah. this number is unbelievably high, right? Yeah. Um, yep. Tell us more about 
that and, and how you how you get those kind of donor retention numbers and, and tell us what that is right now. Okay. Uh, we are really proud of our retention rate. I promise it's the truth. Uh, we put <laughs> an, a significant amount of time and energy into retention. It's one of, if not our biggest development priorities. So over the last several years, we've retained our donors at 98% month over month um, mm. or above. Uh, so we track it every month and we feel responsibility and a motivation to make sure it stays that way. It ends up feeling a little bit competitive against ourselves. So if we see that it's at you know, 97, we're working to make sure we're getting all those passive cancellations back up. Um, and yeah, so currently we have just around 4,000 monthly donors um, and support from that particular channel makes up a little over 70% of our revenue year over year. Okay. So that's been that's been pretty consistent. Uh, we've invested in our, our monthly giving program since day one. So because of that, we're able to dedicate a good deal of time to stewardship and those retention tactics. Okay. Um, and it's not always pretty. Sometimes it does look like handwriting 800 cards. <laughs> you know, as, as someone who's written 800 <laughs> cards in yeah. my in my past, I, I appreciate that. So... <laughs> So is the majority of your supporter base, um, did, did, did you acquire them as monthly supporters or did you have to go through a process to, you know, convince a lot of one-time donors to become monthly supporters? What, what's that look like? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say a lot of donors come to us monthly. We have way okay. more, you know, yeah, <clears throat> we prioritize that monthly giving program, our messaging around it. Um, is really strong. Every story, you know, we were talking earlier about the the stories, the grants that we fund every week. After we fund that grant, we share that story. So it goes on our website, it goes okay. all across our social media. And that's one of, you know, the biggest levers we pull for acquisition. So it's at the end of that story, which um, is very compelling. It doesn't just talk about their illness or, you know, their challenge. It talks about them like they're a human being. You know, they had a life before something happened and um, they're in it now and, and we're here to help them. So the relatability factor, I think, is really important, especially, mm -hmm. you know, now I'm a, a mom of three and um, and I've had three kids over the course of working for Chive Charities. And the way that I read the stories now even feels a little bit different than for I sure. did before. You know, I'm putting myself in those parents' um, shoes. And um, so, so those stories help us acquire those monthly donors. We never, you know, ask for a one-time donation at the end of those stories. Okay. We do have campaigns that are specifically asking for one-time donations. Um, end of year giving is a good example of that. Um, but, but we, we prioritize monthly giving. I can't tell you how many websites of nonprofits I've seen that default to one-time donation on the donate yeah. page. And it's, it's mind blowing to me because, you know, that, that monthly donor over the course of their giving, is going to be way more valuable to you Absolutely. than a one-time donor. Um, that being said, we do have uh, some conversion tactics that we use for one-time donors. We have a one-time donor drip. It consists of, you know, four emails over six months and we use our direct recipient impact in those stories um, to help, to okay. help convert. So it's it's interesting to me. Ninety eight percent, I think, it's the highest retention rate I've ever heard on a on a nonprofit donor file. Um, you know, I've seen eighty before. I've seen eighty five even, but ninety eight is that that again. That's why I just sort of sat back in my chair, dumbfounded. Um, and to hear that you put so much focus on the retention, 
um, is really interesting. It's it's encouraging because most of your counterparts across the country um, would probably say that they spend most of their time trying to find new donors, right? Mm-hmm. Focusing on acquisition. This um, this reminds me of a conversation you and I were having uh, offline before we started the the show today about your your philosophy on investment. Talk a little bit about you know when, when you uh, and your team think up a new fundraising strategy, or you you maybe get pitched by a, a partner that wants to do something that you're not currently doing. How do you think about those investments, and and what do they need to generate in return for you to to be viable for for the organization? Yeah, it's a really interesting um, conversation there. We always have six times ROI in our minds. So if I'm looking at a campaign that we're writing, a lot of the time with a campaign, we have a benefit attached to it. So you know, if you become a, a monthly donor, you get X. Well, that benefit, it we need to make sure that it's it's worth that investment. I mean, it's expensive to to purchase those. It's expensive to ship those. <laughs> so unless we're getting a six time, um, you know, return, we're we're not going to do it. Um, we we apply that way of thinking across the board. Um, right now, I, I just had a, a conversation yesterday. I've been doing a couple of different demos on like peer to peer fundraising platforms okay. that mm-hmm. you know we may decide we want to invest in. But sure. um, unless I have unless I'm attaching a strategy where I have very specific goals and objectives to that, that's going to make sure that we're going to get a six time return on that. Then, then we're not going to do it, or we're not going to do it yet until we have that in place. Okay, um, that's a mistake I see nonprofits making all the time. Yeah. You know, oh, it sounds great. I want to, you know, I'm just using the example of a peer-to-peer funding uh, right. fundraising platform. But if you don't have a strategy in place to really utilize that, then you may end up losing money. Um, and and we think about that with our with our retention tactics as well. So, um, yeah, that's. So I have a follow-up question, but before I go there, um, regarding peer-to-peer, you should check out Funraise, F-U-N-R-A-I-S-E. They they have a phenomenal platform, and I think you'll love the ROI metrics on it. Okay, Um, great. I don't have any association with them other than they do good work and a couple of friends work there, but I don't make any money off of it or anything like that. Um, Okay, I'll check them out. So with that six-to-one multiple, do you ever... Does anybody ever question whether or not you can scale far enough if if you've got such a such an aggressive ROI requirement? Has that ever been a challenge for you? It hasn't yet, you know, okay. and it may be. And if it does come up, then I'm open to hear the argument, right? Okay. Like we've got to be flexible. If there's an opportunity that we say, okay, you know what, it may not make us six times in terms of revenue um, and getting that, getting that, you know, money. But there may be, you know, other benefits that come from it. There may be, you know, a big opportunity for awareness, uh, for relationship building that may in the in the longer term generate, you know, additional return. So, you know, okay. I think we have to we have to think uh, comprehensively about it. Um, but it does raise a red flag to me if I'm going, OK, I'm going to invest in this. I'll give you an example of what we're doing right now. It's our 10 year anniversary. And we are investing in an enormous amount of time and energy into designing a coffee table book that mm-hmm. is going to capture every single one of our grant recipients. We have, you know, over 530 
their the impact of that grant in their lives. It's going to highlight our partners, our origin story. It's going to you know have an introduction to every year and the big milestones that we hit. So it's an enormous amount of time and energy for our team, and it's also expensive. So when thinking about okay, how much is that book going to cost? One book going to cost? Mm-hmm. You know, printing, shipping, all of that. Um, we needed it to be a six time return. Sure. Yeah, that makes and, a lot of sense. And we were able to make it happen. Um, but that didn't, that took some time, right? I mean, it took us trying to find the right vendors, you know, trying to find the right designers. Um, it's it's a careful um process that sometimes, you know, takes a little bit longer than um you'd like, but I think it's worth it. Um, you know, when you're doing something on your house, you're not gonna go with the first quote you get. Right. Right. So even with an idea, sometimes I'll have an idea or a team member will have an idea and look, that's going to be really expensive. Um, let's take that idea. Let's workshop it and let's find a way to make it fit into that, you know, six time ROI framework if we can. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So, you know, I think a lot of people in our sector and a lot of the listeners to the show are constantly searching for, you know, what's that silver bullet for donor retention? You know, and and I I firmly believe that those don't exist, but it's a lot of intentional habits done well yeah. over time, probably that that actually delivers those results. Would you say that that your success is is more related to uh, tactic, strategy, philosophy, all of the above? Like like, give us a little insight on that. Yeah. So I'm with you, Andrew. I would say that our secret is that we don't believe that a silver bullet exists. Uh, I think that's really important. I can't think of many things that will give you an instant result in fundraising and development. Um, You're playing the long game with donor retention. And your magical weapon, I think, is going to be your commitment to the process. Hmm. Your commitment to the process and to understanding your donors. So the philosophical, um, to the tools you ideate, build, and deploy, so your tactics, and then the higher level objectives and goals um, that those tactics fit into and support, so your strategy. So we we spend a good deal of time trying to understand who our donors are and what is meaningful to them, mm-hmm. what drives them, how can we demonstrate our impact in a way that is really going to land and we take those insights and then we apply it to our strategy. So at what cadence are we communicating one-to-one with our donors? How are we segmenting that communication? Um, what is the unique messaging and theme call to action for this particular campaign? Um, what kinds of opportunities are we creating for our donors to feel seen? That's really important. Uh, but also opportunities to give more. Hmm. Uh, and then what tactics are we going to use to support all of that. So from day one of a donor signing up for monthly giving, we are stewarding. You get a personalized welcome text, then you get a handwritten card if you downgrade. So thank you so much for sticking with us. We are so grateful. Like your downgrade only shows us how loyal you are to our mission. Thank you so much. Um, They get a handwritten card when they upgrade. Do do you actually say to them, Thank you for decreasing your gift. Yeah, we'll say thank you. We say thank you for sticking with us. Okay. Right. And we say we we saw that you decreased your monthly giving from green to silver. And we see you. We huh. are so grateful that you chose to not cancel 
and to stick with us. And your impact is going to continue to be life-changing for our recipients. I don't think I've ever heard of any organization doing that. That's really cool. Yeah, it's it's really worked for us. And, And I think it's really important because your donors want to feel seen. So going back to the philosophical, what is important to your donors? You know, there have been times where I've given to nonprofit organizations. I've never once gotten a handwritten card. I've never once gotten a personalized text message. And, and even if I'm really passionate about that mission, I kind of go, you know what, maybe I should look at some other nonprofits to give to. For sure. Um, I want to feel seen. And, and a lot of the time too, when you have a donor who's maybe they're, maybe they started out at $10 a month and they upgraded to 25, that might've been a big deal for them. Mm -hmm. Even if that's not a massive deal for us, right? it's it's probably a big deal for them. Maybe they're, you know, just getting out of college and they're broke and they're in debt and, you know, they're trying to prioritize um, charitable giving. So for us to recognize that and to say, thank you so much for upgrading, you know, 10 to 25 is a big bump. And we are so grateful that you were proactive about doing that. Um, so that's, you know, something that we prioritize. Um, and, uh, and then we also provide member benefits when donors hit certain milestones. So at three months, they get a t-shirt. We have, you know, one, two, three, four year pins. We have a legacy coin at five, we have patches for six, seven, eight, nine. We have a, a different challenge coin for 10. Um, so, those are big for us. So I guess my point is a comprehensive retention strategy will consider all three of those, the philosophical, the tactical, the strategic. Okay. So yeah. um, given the limited resources that we all operate within, like how do you decide which donors are most, and this is going to sound maybe negative, I don't mean it to, but which donors are most worthy of that sort of like full on investment. Do you, do you differentiate based on who's been with you longer? Who's giving more? How do you, how do you slice and dice that to make sure that you're creating the most value where there's value to be created? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So, I mean, first I'll just say, I think it's important as a nonprofit fundraiser, nonprofit leader, um, even someone who's just starting out, Adopting the mindset that every one of your donors has the potential to be one of your best supporters Mm -hmm. is important. I would treat them that way from day one. Um, I also think it's important to create a model for impact that naturally supports retention for all of your donors. So, for example, making storytelling a key component of what you do and how you promote awareness. So, Uh, There are also some other retention plays that take investment on the front end, like member benefits that become passive once they're set up and automated. So that's, that's very helpful, right? So then now you're not, you know, deciding what, which donors are are getting what. Um, So integrating retention into your model, uh, it can do a lot of the work for you. For the retention tactics that take a significant amount of time and money and energy, you know, your bigger major gifts donors are probably more worthy of a plane ticket, uh, of a sure. meal, yeah. um, for sure. Um, but our power is really in treating every donor, even those that give $10 a month, a good deal of energy. So they're all getting handwritten cards. They're all getting text messages. They're all getting one-to-one emails with, um, you know, tailored messaging. Uh, 
the one example that we do have where we do, you know, have to sort of draw a line in the sand is for our annual gala. So uh, we have limited space. And so we have to prioritize donors who are giving at a certain level or um, who have been with us for five years or longer. That's how we determine who gets an invitation to purchase tickets to our gala. You know, and we do, we just actually launched yesterday um, a way for people who don't get that ticket or that uh, invitation benefit to nominate themselves or a member of the community to, to win one of, you know, 50 tickets. Okay. Okay. Um, So we do, we do sprinkle that in, but to answer your question directly, um, that mindset of every donor could be, you know, your biggest one. One of your donors who's given $10 a month could win the lottery tomorrow. Sure. So, sure. you know, very unlikely. Um, <laughs> well, it could happen, you know, it could happen. I, it strikes me as you're, as you were answering that question, I feel like every time you and I talk, I hear the phrase, we just launched something yesterday. Oh yeah. Um, that's different from a lot of organizations, right? Where where there's just sort of a set it and forget it mindset. We've done the same thing for 25 years. We're just going to keep doing it. Talk to us a little bit about sort of your culture and and mindset around um, around that idea of like testing new things and trying things because it it feels to me like like that's just kind of ingrained in the DNA of your organization. Yeah, that's um, I love that. Thank you for saying that and identifying that, um, you know, we are, we're a small team. We're a flexible team. We encourage new ideas. We encourage AB testing. We, uh, we never want to do the same campaign twice. Hmm. Uh, it's not easy. I mean, we launch one donor acquisition campaign, big donor acquisition campaign a year. And the moment that wraps, I'm going to bed at night thinking about how are we going to make this really special next year, <laughs> right? And and so we do have sort of a set when I'm doing campaign planning for the year that I typically start in December and, and finish in January, uh, you know, I'm thinking about, okay, what's our upgrade campaign going to be this year? What's our acquisition campaign going to be this year in terms of the official events that we want to do? You know, what are we prioritizing? And then, you know, engaging every one of your team members in that process and members of your community out of the box ideas. You know, we really encourage um, reading professional development, never stop being a student. Um, We find a lot of ideas from the for-profit sector. Um, A lot of the best insights that I've gotten have been from, you know, for-profit digital marketing books, podcasts. Um, So they're not maybe not be traditional nonprofit, but um, they can be really valuable. So, yeah, I mean, we foster a culture of, um, of innovation and ideas and flexibility and, um, and, and we workshop all of those ideas. And sometimes we decide not to launch them. Hmm. Um, but I think that practice is really important and it also creates a really great environment for our team. You know, everyone feels like they can bring an idea to the table and, and they're going to be listened to and, um, supported and, and Hey, if that campaign goes off, they're also going to get the credit. Um, That's awesome. So talk to me about, um, about failure then, because I know a lot of organizations, a lot of individuals will say to me, yeah, I wish we could do that at my shop, but every time I try something, if it doesn't work, you know, I, I feel like I'm going to get fired. I'm going to lose my job or, or, you know, we're not going to have money to hit, to make payroll next month. How do you Mm. all balance those risks? 
Oh, that's tough. Well, okay. So risks, those are like two things there, right? It's like the financial risk of launching something that may not work. And then there's also the risk of, um, you know, having a culture at your company or within your organization that uh, is toxic. So for us, we say over and over again, we have a sort of robust employee uh, experience and performance review framework. You will, you will know if you're going to be fired. Right. So, and we, and that doesn't mean we don't have employees, especially ones who are younger that you can tell they're always, they're, they're a little bit afraid of, of that. And, um, you know, that comes with being new to an organization, but we will say you will never, you should never be surprised, you know, by the feedback that we're giving you, you know, we encourage and we value a culture of feedback, giving feedback. Our managers are all asking for feedback from their direct reports. So from the top down, we are really trying to um, to create a culture where we're embracing that. We're talking the talk. We're walking the walk. Um, and and so, you know, I would say at Chive Charities, we have a really, we've, we've been able to cultivate a really great culture for our employees. Uh, when it comes to financial risk, that's different. You know, if they, if they feel like they've done something over and over again and it's not working, then you need some help. Um, something about that campaign is not landing with your community. It's not landing with your donors. It's not landing with potential donors. So, um, you know, if that's happening, if, if that's happening over and over again, I would say, you know, it's, it's always a good idea to invest in your community, to invest in relationships with peers who are doing similar work to you and workshop, get on the phone and say, Hey, I'm, I'm stuck. I've tried to do this campaign three different ways and it hasn't worked. Um, pull together the data, pull together the insights, um, maybe survey your community, um, and then try and, and workshop it with people outside of your organization. Get some fresh eyes on it. Um, that's that's really what I would say. But also cool. say, Andrew, that <laughs> for any idea, for anything that we're launching, especially that has something to do with you know donor acquisition or donor stewardship, um, it's that comprehensive strategy that philosophical, tactical, strategic strategy that is in place from the beginning. I think that uh, if nonprofit leaders and fundraisers adopt that mindset of like, this is not going to be a silver bullet. It's not going to happen overnight. We really need to invest on the front end. I think they'll see a lot of success. Yeah, I I agree with you. Excuse me. One of the one of the things that I feel like I hear quite a lot when it comes to cultivating relationship and engaging with donors and, and the stewardship activities, I, I will often hear people say things like, I just don't have the time because we have so many supporters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned automation and some different tools that you use to, to be able to do some of that at scale. Talk a little bit about um, what those tools are or what type of tools they are. And then if you could also just sort of gut reaction to the idea that, you know, like what's the response when somebody says either I have too many donors or I can't think of, you know, engaging that many supporters. Like I I know I have my own personal bias and reaction to that. And it's, it's maybe a little more um, abrasive than, than some others, but I want to, I want to hear yours and I want to hear a little bit about how, you know, what are the kind of things that you use to be able to manage those relationships at scale um, so that others might benefit from it? Yeah, that's a really interesting um, statement. So my gut reaction would be 
you probably don't have a big enough development team if you feel like you truly can't engage with your the enormous amount of donors that you have that you're too overwhelmed to engage with them. So um, I, I would say investing in your dev team is really, really important. Um, and I would also say investing, you know, your donors make your world go round when you're in nonprofit. So um, I think they should really be number one. And a lot of the time, members of your team at large have nothing to do with retention. And I think they should. So give the rest mm. of your team an opportunity to take on some of those tasks. Have them write a, a you know stack of handwritten cards. Build that into their workflow. Um, everybody should be thanking your donors. Um, it shouldn't just be one person. I mean, do we have somebody on our team who is you know entrenched in that work? Yes, absolutely. But I'm also sending one-to-one emails. You know, uh, other directors on the team are sending those one-to-one emails. So I think my gut reaction is you're not prioritizing. You may not be prioritizing the right thing. Um, and and look, you know, we've we've talked about this. Acquiring a new donor is a lot harder than retaining one. Mm-hmm. Everyone, you know, we know this. Everyone knows this. So it should be, you know, one of your very top um, priorities. Um, that being said, you know, you you may not be able to do it all at once. So I think you can segment donors, and depending on what you're asking for, depending on what you're communicating about, you know, you can segment your lists. You can do smaller sends throughout the year. Um, but I would really, really encourage you to at the beginning of the year, if this is a, a big problem for you, I would write a, a strategy and a calendar of when you're going to have a touch point with each one of your donors throughout the year. You've got to have at least one, Hmm. at least one touch point that feels personal. It feels personalized. It feels impactful. Um, And and if you can't do that, then hire Andrew to (laughs) to write a strategy to help you do that. You you are going to miss out if you are not engaging with your donors meaningfully. Um, yeah, that's that's right. There's the quote of the conversation today. I think. Yeah, very you know, very important. I it, it's so funny. I I found myself saying to someone a couple of weeks ago, like you don't have any business spending another dollar on donor acquisition if you can't meaningfully build relationship with the donors you already have. Like, stop chasing what could be and start, you know, building what is. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's it's so important. Um, it's so important. And look, if you're going to do acquisition, um, start with one-time donors. Start with people, inactive monthly donors, monthly donors who, you know, either passively canceled and you weren't able to, to get them, you know, back right then when their credit card information expired. Um, start with the easy stuff, right? So that you're not spending an enormous amount of your time on acquisition so that you can pivot and spend mm-hmm. the time on stewardship. Stewardship yeah. should be number one. So what um, are, are there specific tools you use to, to build your automations? Are there things that you found more valuable than others? Well, look, the only automation we really use is for a member benefits program. So, okay. you know, that that's pretty automated. And, you know, we were able to attach that to our, our member management program on the back end. So gotcha. donor accounts, once you hit a certain milestone, that uh, uh, that member benefit is sort of, uh, release um, and they are donors can opt into it. Other than that, I mean, we are very hands on. Okay. Get your hands dirty. You're writing those emails. Your hands are cramping. <laughs> so I you're needed. you're actually like 
when you sit down to, to create that stewardship email, that that's a build from the ground up. It's not like you've, you know, seven months ago, 12 months ago, you built 27 emails and said, we're just going to drip these out over the year. No. Okay. No, no. Okay. So I, I think about those kinds of emails very differently. So we have email drips. We have one-time donor email drips. We have checkoff, donor checkoff, um, you know, checkout drop-off, sorry, uh, okay. email drips. Those are different. We can we can automate those, right? Um, but when I'm talking about donor stewardship, donor retention, I'm talking about sitting there and I'm looking at a donor profile and I'm looking at when their first donation was, how much they have donated to date, and how many recipient lives they've impacted. Mm, and I'm including that. that in my email to them. Okay. Including that in their handwritten card. So it you're not doing that. You're not sitting down and not sitting down and writing 4,000 emails at once. But throughout the year, each one of our donors, they're going to know, know what their impact is. And it mm. makes it very hard to cancel. If you know how many lives you've yeah. touched to date, it's it's hard to, to press cancel. Um, and when you feel like you're a part of a donor family, when you feel seen by the people who are running the organization, when you feel like, hey, I can, I can email Erica, I can email Jen, I can email Brian, and you're going to get a response. Um, it's, it's just really heartwarming and incredible. And, and if you're automating everything, you're really missing out. Something that really motivates me, and I know motivates you know, uh, many members of our team, especially the ones that are in dev, uh, are the responses that we get. Mm. I mean... I sent a, an email out, it was a week and a half ago, and some of the responses, I mean, literally brought tears to my eyes. Um, it was so meaningful. And one donor wrote back to me and said, you know, this is exactly what you need to do. Just communicate with us. You just solidified my giving forever. Hmm. Um, you know, and it just, it was sort of astounding. And I think it was a really good reminder of how meaningful it is to just to just show gratitude and and to feel like you know as a donor you are um, you're meaningful to the organization you're impactful to the organization um, and again that's like if you're donating at a lower level or you're donating thousands of dollars a month yeah um, especially for for those um, smaller donations yeah yeah I think though you know those supporters. If you look at the overall revenue in our sector, that's where so much of it comes from. But often they they get um, dismissed or forgotten about because they're not writing a, a six, seven, eight figure check. You know. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So we're just about out of time. But before before I let you go, um, I would love for you just you know thinking about the the new fundraiser who's just coming into their career. Uh, oh, yeah. or, or maybe that fundraiser who's kind of like, man, these last two years have sucked and I'm ready to just punch out and be done. Like what, um, what words of wisdom or encouragement would you share with, with those folks? Okay. Yeah. That's a great question. And um, so if you're entering the sector, I, I would encourage you to start networking now. Um, identify peers who are doing similar things, connect online, even offline, share ideas, build community. Um, fundraising can be really lonely. So being in it with a community and learning from others and, you know, using each other as sounding boards can be very, very positive. And also don't be afraid to bring new ideas to the table. So don't stop reading, never stop being a student. So many ideas for campaigns have come from, you know, 
like I talked about earlier, like podcasts, interviews, uh, book, publication, and many of them are, are from for-profit, like I said. So that's really important. Make sure that you're staying up to date on all of that. Don't get stuck in the way things are. <laughs> um, huge. For fundraisers who are feeling burnt out, we've all been there. It's it's tough work. Um, something that has helped me is keeping my professional development top of mind. So <laughs> thinking about it, when I'm in the trenches, when I'm feeling like, oh my God, <laughs> I don't know if I can go another day. I think like, what is my ideal role? Am I in my ideal role? Um, what am I working towards? Um, I think that you can lose that so easily in the day-to-day grind, um, but keeping your eyes up and feeling like uh, you have motivation to continue learning and growing um, and getting to that next step, especially if it's in your existing organization, that can help. Some organizations prioritize professional development and they have those set development tracks and others do not. So if yours does not, meaning they're not super you know, proactive about it, not that they wouldn't love for that to happen, then you need to be your own advocate. So write a proposal for your ideal role, write it down, write the job description, write, you know, what you're going to do and present it to your manager. And if you're not, if they don't believe that you're ready to do it now, then create a track to get there, work with your manager to create a track to get there. I think that is really, really important. And then I think just lastly, I would say that this is the good work. Um, somebody told me and, and the rest of our team yesterday, she sent a beautiful email to our team in response to a, a recipient story that we launched about a girl named Kimberlexia. Um, and she said, she said, you're doing the holy work. Hmm. And it was striking to read. Um, it's an honor and it's a privilege to be in a position that positively impacts and even changes people's lives. So I think it's a good reminder to just not forget about that. Don't forget about the mission, why you're here. And if you need to take a break, then take it, take a break. You can always come back. Um, That's what I would say, but um, I'm in it. I'm in it with all of you guys. (laughs) We're in it together. Uh, It's it's tough work, but it's the good work. It's the holy work. Uh, That's that's fantastic. Erica, uh, how do people reach you if they want to follow up and, and connect with you? Yeah, they can email me, erica.carly at chivecharities.org. Uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, just Erica Carly. Uh, and I'd love to connect and and network and talk about nonprofit and fundraising. Awesome. Well, this was a great conversation. Love the insights and really just uh, appreciate, um, appreciate the way that you're working and how you're... Uh, trying to, and not just trying, but successfully changing the way organizations engage with their supporters. It's really refreshing. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Have you read my Amazon number one best-selling book, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them Yet? It's the book that I wrote with expertise from over 20 nonprofit leaders and their 300 years of combined experience. You can download it for free today. Just visit andrewolson.net and go to the free resources tab on my site.